Hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, uh, Marianela Ramos Capello, and I'm the other half, Ruth Kustik Deal. And what are we talking about this time? Well, we're going to be talking about war. I mean, war is ever present. It's such an important part of everyone's nation state. History is basically just the stories of war, sadly. Well, I'm oversimplifying here. So we were just wondering how the digital and the internet and these topics of tech are intersecting with war and conflicts. It's obviously a really vast area to be covering. So we're really only going to be scratching the surface of it. And really want to be talking about all the things around war that create the conditions that make it all possible. You know, what are the stories about war, the mythology of it that we use to make it all seem legitimate? And what are the things that create a sense of authority that people think that it's a good idea? How are things changing in terms of who is involved in warfare and the aspects of class and race and gender and who is actually fighting these wars? So, you know, this is just like one small part of something that's a really vast and complex topic, but I think it's something really important for us to talk about. And as with many of these really challenging topics, we have got an expert on the podcast to join us so that we can get some of their insights into this. And they've just written a book called Capital State Empire, The New American Way of Digital Warfare. And their name is Scott Timka, and he's joining us now. On to the interview. Hi Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Do you mind if we just kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be writing this book and a little bit more about your background? Oh, thanks. Uh, with pleasure. Uh, so my name is Scott Timke. Uh, I'm a comparative political economist, sort of interested in the study of class, race, equality, social change, those kinds of things. And sort of during my PhD, sort of that I did at Simon Fraser University in Canada, sort of I was starting to think about projects that were trying to re-theorize contemporary notions of class identity, ideology, politics, coercion, violence, in line with sort of the types of social developments around us. So I, I was very interested in how inequality and violence were intimately connected. And so that was really sort of the point of germination for this, this book that we're going to sort of talk about today, Capital State Empire. I tend to sort of think through sort of Marxian notions of how violence sort of uh, comes about, sort of that it's, you know, always related to material struggle. It's not just something that's sort of superficial and a superstructure of sort of life, but something that's sort of very much central to how we go about our day-to-day -day lives. That's really cool. So one of the first things that caught my, my attention was uh, the subtitle of your book, uh, Capital State Empire. The subtitle is The New American Way of Digital Warfare. And I was like, okay, what is this new American way, digital warfare? Um, can you explain a little bit more about that? What's new about it? And what's uh, how's the digital manifesting itself in these processes of war? You always need a bit of a subtitle that's going to catch a bit of an eye and try sell. So maybe there's a little bit of an over, overselling on my part about sort of the newness. I mean, in the sense that 
the digital and the types of infrastructures that have been that we sort of see on a day-to-day basis have been part of the American military machinery since the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The thing that I uh, sort of want to emphasize that is something new is that um, we see a combination of continuity from sort of old American institutional antecedents, sort of in like genocide, slavery, disposition. Um, but now we see sort of mechanisms like computationally aided dragnets, uh, surveillance, drone and cyber warfare, and sort of protracted conflicts abroad. We see all of these securitization dynamics within the United States as well, in the case of sort of militarized policing of the most vulnerable, data profiling, automated attempts to subvert dissent or dissent. Uh, new computational techniques of ideological manipulation are sort of being added to mystify all this so we don't really have a, a general sense of what's occurring to us. So that's sort of the newness of it is that there's still a degree of continuity with sort of this major impulses within the American political system, but we sort of see new technologies being adapted to fulfill these larger functions. Yeah, it's quite a lot to cover, isn't it? So like broadly speaking in the West, we have this mythology of soldiers. It's often quite like hyper-masculine imagery of battlefields and like a noble cause or like the need to defend the nation state obviously these are like simplified versions of like a lot of complicated imagery that's used but overall we do have a kind of like consistent mythology that you might be able to point to over like several hundred years but how Mm. do you think that digital is challenging these kind of mythologies is it fitting into existing mythologies or creating new ones i mean i think that's an excellent question um, I remember reading this book, I forget who it was by, and I forget the title, but it was talking about sort of the cultural studies uh, analysis of warfare in the Napoleonic era, but more in a case of how the the outcomes of wars and battles were received within the populations, whether it be in London or other sort of places like that. Because of the, the delay of these uh, conflicts, you know, it sort of took a couple of days or a couple of weeks, or in some cases, maybe a couple of hours for the notification of the battle to start. And then sort of, you know, as the casualty reports come in, sort of there's almost like a shock when people sort of become to realize that this is what has happened in that sort of the conflict. So there's a almost a visceral shock to the reporting of war. And just today, there's something very different where you can actually almost follow the, the battle in real time. I mean, if you go onto, say, YouTube, for example, there used to be these genres of YouTube videos like called Board in Iraq or GoPro combat footage where you can actually see sort of soldiers in combat or in their day-to-day experiences. And that sort of that brings the, the visceral experience of war almost to your device. You know, it's, it's into your hand right now. You can, as much as sort of like a drone pilot is overseeing what's happening on the battlefield, you know, you're not that far removed from being able to see what's sort of taking place. I think that's kind of interesting sort of change in the phenomenology of conflict, how it's reported, how we can see it. But it also then sort of begs the question about, like, how do we come to ignore it too? Mm. It's fascinating just to have that contrast of being so close, like you said, almost real-time witnessing of what's going on. And at the same time, because of this, or these events are being mediated through the yeah, internet, precisely. You, you still have that separation that like, it's almost like a video game instead of a real life event that's going on. Yeah, yeah. It also just doesn't come with the same kind of commentary, perhaps? Is it because it's just footage that it seems like 
there's no engagement of like how you're supposed to read it or perhaps it's even like presented in a more positive way and they seem that well look we're doing great things and it's more propaganda-esque. I guess I'm thinking about a lot of First World War poetry and writing which I've studied a lot in the past and I'm really really interested in is how much when people were reporting that they came back or they wrote these poems did these paintings and said war was horrific and terrifying and they wrote these like ultimately gruesome poetry like anthem for doomed youth and people were so shocked by it because they were bringing home those feelings with the storytelling whereas perhaps now we don't talk about our feelings it's just like the footage and you're left to kind of make your own response to it yeah i, th- I think you're definitely right there ruth that there's a the absence of commentary and framing around it and that sort of lends it to sort of interpretation through your own uh, ideological priors that you bring to that piece of media but I mean, I think the other thing is that the way that we speak about war, at least in the West, it's moved away from uh, prose and poetry and sort of more onto sort of the big screen. You know, we think of sort of some of the bigger uh, blockbuster films around war that have emerged out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, there are a couple of, sort of films that are sort of about social ramifications or and the personal ramifications of stop-loss programs, the types of uh, programs that the Pentagon instituted for soldiers to re-enlist and to sort of continue to do tours in Afghanistan. So there's some of those things, but that's sort of also offset by films like American Sniper, which sort of give very much this jingoistic rendering of conflict over there, even while we have, you know, this type of footage that shows that it's not quite like that. You know, things are a little more lot more complicated, there's much more nuance, you know, sectarian violence in these places contributes much more. There's no one overarching enemy, you know, so there's this almost this great simplification of war that we have that's related to our digital connection to it. And some of these movies are directly funded by the military. I think the first one that came to mind was um, Superman, which apparently was a terrible movie, I did not see it, but you can see it in the credits. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it was... I think it, it was the U.S. Army. They're credited, like in the credits, they're like, thank you for your support. And I think part of it was that they allowed them to use real, I don't know if they were tanks or planes or something, but it was all part of, yeah. it was like propaganda all the way, not even... Yeah, Yeah. well, the, the best example is, is Top Gun. Right. You know, Top Gun, you have all of these, you know, F-14 uh, jets sort of blasting off carriers, and you can't sort of do that without uh, sort of, you know, the cooperation of uh, the Pentagon. They have an entire uh, department that's uh, sole purpose is to liaise with Hollywood to, to try sort of make sure that they, you know, I think the, the proper word is script doctrine. They help to sort of shape the narrative of how troops are presented. Mm-hmm. And you sort of, and they have sort of ways and means to sort of sign off on scripts to say, well, if you don't have these types of positive or redemptive elements, you can't get access to this equipment. And it means you can't sort of create uh, more, I'm going to put in the quotation marks over here, more realistic war film. There's an incredible amount of cultural management that goes with war, it seems. It's just... Yeah, yeah. Even the very, like, loved Marvel Avengers films do have military funding for a lot of it. And, Mm. you know, I'm a big fan of them. And I always find it fascinating because, you know, films like The Winter Soldier are kind of critical of military, but you also could see that the military funded part of it. So you think of what was it that got cut out in order to get that funding? You know, how much Mm. editing did that film also have? So, I mean, that's a very interesting film, Rufa, because I I think towards the very end, it has this moment where it shows uh, the Dragnet surveillance going live and everyone who's going to be targeted. And you sort of almost see it like an infection just pop up on the screen and just how everyone is going to be documented and profiled 
and subject to this uh, uh, regime. And sort of a very visceral moment of you know, the, the, the types of um, scope of these types of technologies that I think sort of most people sometimes sort of out of their mind or out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, it's my favorite Avengers film for that reason, because I think it's mm. the one that is really making a point about actual technology and, you know, what happens when you can't even tell who to trust within your institutions. And also like the fact that they feel like this is something that the, the bad guys would be doing. But actually, it's the institutions themselves are developing this exact same technology. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very, very relevant, actually. Yeah, so I think maybe that's a good way to sort of pivot to the second half of your question which is, you know, to what extent does a digital allow sort of a challenging of these sort of narratives? And I think you sort of pointed out a great example over there. So I think we can also see when it comes to people who are trying to sort of do anti-military recruitment efforts, sort of, you know, uh, there's a lot of work that I know that's sort of going around in Chicago and across the New York and places like that, sort of big uh, cities in the United States. And it allows sort of anti-military recruiters to very much get in touch with youth to sort of maybe try to dissuade them from joining these this sort of imperial marching machine. Uh, so I think things like that are sort of excellent. It allows sort of, we'll try to sort of help persuade you know, vulnerable people in their states not to join up, not to volunteer for this, this type of activity, sort of give them more options with life. And things like that are sort of fantastic. Yeah, and then the, there's other, um, that other element. I'm not sure if it's part of war intentionally or just a byproduct, but I immediately thought of... Um, the book uh, Twitter and Tear Gas by yes, Sinep yeah. And it's just this whole thing of how the platforms like Twitter in, in that one case, but um, are also allowing people to almost become self-aware of their role in the war and in conflict. So it's almost like this is important. They're cutting out Internet in that particular area. Why mm. is it that they're cutting out Internet? What can we do to like counter well that attack? And you have like populations kind of coming together, SMS uh, or texting each other and then like tweeting based on text and stuff like that. So it's, I don't know, it's like an interesting tool in the toolbox of, of the power kind of resistance, just the, the little fight there. That's one thing that sort of, I think that book that you mentioned sort of brings to the fore is, you know, how sort of technologists can help sort of dissidents, mm -hmm. either sort of by helping doing some training and building skills and capacities for when a, sort of a place goes dark. I mean, I, I think that kind of media literacy is something that, uh, given the types of destabilizations we're facing at the moment, should be at the forefront of any good degree programming communications is, is how can you try sort of communicate subversively when you're under such scrutiny from a regime that doesn't have your best interests at heart. Okay, so jumping around a little bit, obviously one of the big topics in your book, you talk about capitalism in relation to all of this stuff, in relation to war mm. and empire. And one of the things that I was thinking about is when we talk about war, we generally think about nation states uh, at war with one another. But increasingly, we see a lot of private companies being involved. And I don't just mean mercenaries. I mean the way in which some of these big companies like Amazon and Google are getting involved with supporting the military. And then the interesting thing that I came across was this company, Boston Dynamics, who created the war dogs that lots of people who watch videos of, these uh, you know dogs that jump and move around, and some people think they're cute, I think they're terrifying. <laughs> that company is owned by Alphabet, who are also yeah. a beautiful company who own Google. And I was wondering whether you think that this kind of thing was inevitable, you know, that Google would own military tech. 
and especially as they have been involved in like developing drone technology but then their employees walked out on that and they've sort of backed away but it seems like it's like a line that they keep pushing themselves towards and what you know was that inevitable and where is that going i mean i think the short answer is, is yes if you're a big technology company the defense department's budget is just too big to ignore so they're you know i don't have the exact figures on, on me but i think the Defense Department uh, and related sort of industries around it contribute or make up 11% of the United States GDP. That's trillions of dollars that you know you, your shareholders are going to demand that you go for. We can sort of take a step back and sort of look at the broader context of some sort of American tech firms. Like we speak about like how Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, so on and so forth. You know, some of the most valuable firms in the United States by stock market value. And a lot of these sort of, a lot of wealth has comes from sort of unpaid uh, labor, uh, sort of as users turn themselves into commodities. And that's sort of very much related to how Silicon Valley more broadly controls sort of the inescapable foundations of our contemporary economy. And we think of sort of cell phones, social networking, cloud computing, retail logistics, and all those types of things, and much of which was sort of the basic research was funded by military budgets. And I think sort of this is, for me, one reason why we have to be very suspect of research initiatives into artificial intelligence, machine learning. Those are the kinds of software platforms that are going to be definitely used to complement these mechanical robotic uh, war dogs that you sort of spoken about or other types of technologies that Boston Dynamics has. I think we, you know, we definitely need to sort of be more circumspect, you know, maybe more terrified to sort of use, use your word about the types of technologies that are sort of being shown in these very cute propaganda videos on YouTube. I mean, what do you make about all of these Google walkouts? I mean, I know there's been a few over different kinds of things, but there was this thing where like 3,000 employees spoke out against helping with um, drone targeting and said that they wanted Google to like stop doing this work. And it just makes me wonder whether, like, as there's been walkouts over like sexual harassment in the workplace, and like mm. I've seen more and more kind of like groups within various of these tech giants quitting because of like collaborating with ICE, for instance, in the US. Mm. Do you think that these people, like these kind of like strikes and walkouts, could actually change the direction for these companies? Yeah, of course. I mean, labor can struggle and labor can win. Uh, but the, the thing that we have to sort of recognize over here is that these are sort of very highly skilled, in demand, the sets of talents that these programmers and other associated staff members have. Uh, manufacturers on the floor at Raytheon aren't as well positioned to do that kind of strike. Uh, so it very much sort of connects to the type of occupation that, that, they, that they have. So I would very much encourage all the technologists sort of working in the Valley, uh, whether it be sort of at Microsoft, they recently had an internal strike over there, issuing grievances over Microsoft's partnership with ICE. And we've seen you know, the case that you present about Project Maven with, and Google, those things sort of are to be applauded. But there are also other companies that don't have uh, as many scruples or you know, are subject to the same types of pressures, like sort of many of the companies that Peter Thiel owns, for example, you have no qualms about sort of doubling down uh, on these types of projects. And so to me, it's a, it's a question of, you know, what are the shareholder class going to do? Well, they might just appease their you know, highly skilled labor pool and say, okay, well, we're not going to do it in this branch of uh, alphabet, but we'll do another branch of alphabet. And so that kind of that fiction of a hard wall between this company and that company sort of just starts to disappear when you have a look at the shareholders and the types of benefits they're accruing from different entities within their own 
within a, their labyrinth of corporate structures that they bring to the table. So to me, it's, it's in some cases, it's about sort of just moving pieces around within within an industrial sector. But still, that doesn't mean it's sort of the types of efforts that Google employees or Microsoft employees or the like don't have any value. I think they so they certainly do. It sounds like such a, I don't know, I'm just like, would this ever work? <laughs> but, you know, it's part of the struggle. I'm glad that these uh, walkouts are happening the one thing is usually, um, for example, for the sexual harassment walkouts, what follows is that a bunch of people get fired or their contracts are not renewed, but then we don't get to hear that. So it's almost like, yep, let them have the moment and then silence. Yeah. But before we go into more tangents of that, I just want to take a moment to talk about when war looks inwards. So as you mentioned in your book, mm. this is nothing new. Like you, you bring up a lot of history, um, including the Amer American Civil War an example of like the wars of inside a, a nation we usually think of war of like this country against the other country what happens when it looks inwards and things like the militarization of police come to mind um surveillance of activism i mean uh, that's an excellent question with sort of many sort of moving parts mm -hmm. that's one of those simple questions that sort of uh, you know you, you turned over and suddenly there's just so much to talk about yeah. so i'm going sort of put a couple sort of what I think are sort of core issues on the table. The first way to approach this is to understand that war is directed at someone or at something that, you know, there's a target to it. There's something that needs to be fought and these things are sort of specified. There's a, whether it be sort of uh, indigenous Americans or whether it be uh, slaves that were sort of later brought to uh, the North American continent. These are sort of people who are specified as having to be subordinated and subjected to the state's imperative of control. The thing now with sort of the digital and sort of the types of complicated societies we have at the moment is that real and imagined site of borders is not sort of at the at the boundary of the territoriality of the state. The, the state is sort of ever present in our lives and in, in sort of questions of regulation, of questions of law, of, of questions of police, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think one of the persons who have sort of, who's spoken sort of best about this sort of is Netsay Coates when he's trying to sort of talk about the theorization of race in America. I mean, the one thing I find about sort of his, his work is he offers us an especially strong account of the enduring inequalities of sort of accumulation by disposition, uh, exploitation, hierarchical civil uh, status, and how all of those three things are sort of preserved by state-sanctioned violence. And of course, the other thing that which sort of gets quite a lot of media play is how this sort of state-sanctioned violence complemented with various types of moves of innocence, to sort of use the, the concept, that sort of permit an historical amnesia about the right to take black life and how that, that right to take black life is systematically embedded and remains a core component of capitalism in the Americas, that the right to take black life exists because black people more broadly aren't seen as full rights holders and bearers of entitlements, moral status, civic status. And so that their loss of life is a feature of sort of the, the operations of the, of, the, of the American state more broadly. And so it's sort of his type of analysis sort of starts to corrode this idea of sort of American exceptionalism, the types of myths around, you know, how everyone belongs and how if you work hard, you can rise to the top and all that other types of ideological drabble that sort of come with how some, some Americans think about themselves and the, and the country in which they live. Yeah. And, and what you mentioned also is how um, a lot of these processes at the core are, you know, very similar to like the 
larger processes. So it's not only about getting rich, it's also about retaining that power. Yes, but it's about staying rich as well. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the question of, of violence is, is always connected to how a state emerges and continues about who is subordinating and, and for what reasons. In the case of sort of uh, black Americans uh, or black African Americans, you know, we can see how the state, through sort of claiming the legitimate use of violence, that violence is then used to subordinate and exclude black people from the democracy more broadly. We can sort of see Michael Brown's death, for example, you know, sort of to use maybe one of the most notable cases in the last uh, couple of years, you know, is just an ordinary event in American policing. And that's sort of really the tragedy of, of his death and sort of many people like him. It's, it's just a typical day in the American state. It's very, very terrifying. Yeah, it's gruesome. And yeah, yeah, I literally read today this story about a six-year-old girl, six-year-old black girl, who was arrested for having a tantrum. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And the thing is that, you know, getting, recalling one of your earlier questions, uh, the digital allows some of these things to be more widely known about. But the question for me is, like, despite the sort of this knowing, uh, this witnessing that we see, there's been significant advances, but I don't think there's... I think we'd, we'd wish it, that we'd had better success more broadly with trying to sort of overcome uh, some of these structures and circumstances, mm-hmm. these structures and systems. Well, and kind of to pivot from that, at the beginning of uh, your book, you mentioned uh, your decision to not bring the gender lens, in, lens into your analysis, mostly due to the space and the scope of the book. Um, but if you had had the space or if you will have the space to do so, uh, what kind of questions would you have liked to explore on that arena? The, the first track is sort of questions of domestic violence and how that's linked to patriarchy and militarism more broadly, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be gender-based violence within the armed forces, within the American armed forces. And then that gets back to sort of questions in some way, uh, sort of a classic question of why some women continue to support the system because they just happen to benefit from it. And so why do we have these types of personal compromises that come at the expense uh, of sort of a system that doesn't treat their class Fairly. I mean, at least in my mind, women constitute the largest component of the working class in the United States. They do both uh, sort of professional work, working class work, then all the domestic work. And so I think it's easy to say that they, they constitute the biggest class. And so why do they continue, for the most part, to support that type of system? What are the real ways in which they, or some women, let me say, benefit from and support the sort of violent apparatus? And so what does that mean for others that are excluded and are very much sort of subject to sort of gender-based violence, those who sort of bear, bear the brunt of it? And so that would sort of be one line of inquiry. The second one would is sort of be pick, to pick up on a couple of things that sort of Kimberly Crenshaw has sort of put out, and that is how cops work every day with black women. Mm-hmm. And I think some questions about foregrounding structural intersec- uh, foregrounding issues that sort of tackle structural intersectionality uh, as it's sort of related to social reproduction more broadly. What do you mean by social reproduction? It's a type of labor that gets the worker ready for work. Uh, sort of that's one way to sort of very much simplify it. The type of activities that uh, make labor possible in the first place. So to give concrete examples, cooking, cleaning, domestic chores, care work, all of those things sort of constitute the things necessary in order to prepare the worker to go to work the next day. Uh, and for the longest time, that type of work was more broadly neglected from analysis, from theory, 
from theorization. It's only in the last 30 years, 30, 40 years that that type of, that those types of concerns have sort of come back onto the table. And so it was mostly due to uh, sort of a lot of uh, good feminist theorizing that we are now sort of looking at uh, this kind of work. It's 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 a lot. And then bringing it back to the context of war and, and all of these um, themes that we're touching is like uh, the military itself and the cases of abuse, sexual abuse, other abuse that uh, happened that's heavily gendered. That's one thing. But also the all other cultural aspect of this of like, you know, if care work is gendered, what does it mean for women to prepare kids to go to war and die? So that's that's oh. just another aspect that keeps coming to mind and how like uh, movies and all of other cultural artifacts kind of help. Well, people do that, right? Like, here's my kid's state. Oh. Please take him or her to fight your wars and get more oil or, you know, I'm oversimplifying. But yeah, it we yeah, there's a lot of a lot of. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough over there because. Yeah, from the little bit of reading I've done in this area, a lot of uh, women don't want their uh, their children to go off and join the army because they sort of or the you know the military uh, forces because they sort of know what they're going to be up against. But they're also sort of people who are a little bit more privileged who sort of are very active participants in gun rights culture mm-hmm. uh, that are, you know, buy their children weapons for Christmas. You know, sort of every year on Twitter around Christmas, I look forward maybe with a little bit of dread, but of all these you know, young kids and okay, you know, you don't want to be stereotypical over here, but Predominantly, I would imagine, uh, you know, white families in the South are buying their young uh, sons and young daughters sort of uh, AR-15s. And so you now have these tweets going around uh, with uh, the unboxing of the weapons. And you're like, that's a, that's a very strange thing that sort of not being an American or not being present in the U.S. for an extended period of time is very odd to me. I just really can't wrap my head around why you would want to give your child something designed for the battlefield. Yeah. The atrocities of war do require this whole cultural apparatus to support it. And I guess that's yeah, one of yeah, the most gruesome or weird parts of it, the unboxing of little rifles for kids. Just like, oh, God. Yeah, I just feel uh, like it disgusted me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're nearing the end of our time in the interview. Ruth, do you have anything for you? I mean, yeah, just wanted to ask if you had any last remarks, anything that you wanted to say earlier that you didn't get the chance to. Yeah, I think sort of... There are sort of many issues given sort of your guys' approach sort of uh, roots in sort of like an intersectional feminist politics that I think sort of can very much sort of amplify and extend sort of the type of work that I've done over here. Sort of my own work, at least in this book, Capital State Empire, sort of speaks to sort of digital elements as sort of being new venues and sites of uh, coercion, uh, new mechanisms that enable coercion and frustrate activists. Uh, but I think that this very much needs to be complemented and extended, more materially grounded feminist approaches. And so, you know, I, I look forward to sort of seeing uh, your guys' thoughts and your audience receptions of uh, this project uh, and a sort of project that emanates and comes from it. See, thank you thank so you. much. And, um, well, I always ask this question at the end of every interview, but I ask the guests to tell us a little bit in a nutshell about their origin story. I mean... How did you end up doing what you're doing right now? What you already covered a little bit of this, but yeah, what's your origin story? I think it's, I think some of the types of concerns I have around settler colonialism, imperialism, resource extraction, coercion, both as very overt and covert elements, are things that if you're South African, you've got to be very ignorant and naive not to have at the very forefront of your mind. 
South Africa, sort of as a sort of a, geo, a geographical descriptor, has been a site of imperial struggle for 400 years. There have been atrocities over here related to military occupations. There have been ideological struggles regarding capitalism and, and communism and other types of political ideologies that have animated the, the 19th and 20th century here. And then, of course, you know, the types of military struggles that have, that occurred under apartheid, the types of securocratic reasoning that organized the apartheid state for 40 years. These types of things were very much sort of part of my childhood growing up. You know, I used to, you know, see the consequences of these material forces on a day-to-day basis uh, and how this uh, is sort of racialized, how people are subjected to the state, how state formation more broadly creates uh, uh, categories of membership and belonging that these people get to have and those people don't get to have. And so, like, for myself, I find it very difficult to sort of explain all of that because it was just present in my personal and political biography. It, it just it just merely is there. But thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, I don't know, for doing this work and for sharing sharing this work with us and, uh, you know, sitting here and chatting on a Sunday night. I was just kind of, just to, for the listeners to know, uh, we're in three different places around the world, three different continents, basically, you know, with, with a computer, microphones. It's strange to have the technology nowadays to have this in... You know, I'm here in my little attic in, in Vancouver just doing this. And I hope people kind of find a little bit of wonder on the marvels of technology. I don't know. I, I still cannot understand how this is possible. But thank you so much for for uh, spending your Sunday night with us. Ruth, do you have anything else? Just where can people yeah. find you if you would like to be found? It was been found by who is the real question, right? <laughs> um, but people can go to my website, uh, Timkey. Uh, dot com s-c-o-t-t-t-i-m-c-k-e uh, i have a repository of my work up there google my name it's very odd spelling i i, I get that but uh, any variation of my of i if you misspell my name you'll still be able to find me pretty easily and people can uh check out your book um it's available there for uh, download yeah maybe let me just do a quick plug for that so the book itself you can buy sort of on amazon or other sort of leading bookstores Or if you want to go and be crafty about it, uh, you can go to the University of Westminster Press's uh, website and download it as a PDF, EPUB, or any other type of file format and uh, download and read to your heart's content. You don't have to steal, but if you want to steal, even better, go go big. Why respect bourgeois property rights? Yeah, And and we always always, uh, plug libraries, so contact your library and tell them to bring your book. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. And... We are really looking forward to the episode. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So, Marinella, what did you? Uh, what are you taking away from today's episode? Well, I mean, there's so much. I always say the same. There's so much. I think one key thing for me was I just never really gave time to think about all of the things that need to be in place for humans to be able to go into war and do and act terrible acts of violence, you know, against other people, against themselves, and the logistics around it. So all the culture that needs to be in place, the myths, and how we all participate in this. So, yeah, warfare is such a broad cultural phenomenon, um, and I don't think I've ever realized how deep in it we are. 
even by using the technologies of war, which is like the internet that we're using right now. So that's, uh, my head is exploding a little. What about you? No, similarly, I was really surprised when he said that thing about how many of the technologies and companies that we use come out of the military. You know, I knew the thing about the internet itself, but when he was mentioning other things, you know, even like recording software or like communication devices, it's it's kind of quite startling when you think that all of these things come out of something that fundamentally I'm quite like ethically opposed to. That was like quite something to sit with. And I think the other thing, I've always been really interested in storytelling. And you know, I mentioned the thing about First World War writing and I've told you once before that I had this period where I was just like obsessed with reading everything from the First World War, like all of these different like letters and poems and prose and plays. I would like really love to learn more about what kind of art is being created by people who are on the front lines of conflict at the moment. Because, you know, we talked a little bit about the more propaganda-esque Hollywood movies as being the stories of war, but... That's something really different. You know, that's the things that the institutions are telling. But I think I would really like to learn more about the kind of individual stories on, you know, all kinds of conflict. And if the digital, if these kind of like ways of direct recording has actually changed how people are telling their own stories. You know, do people feel like things are less horrific? Do they trust the voices of people on the front lines less because they think they've seen it on the news so they know what everything is like? I don't know. I just think that it's something I'd really like to think and read more about. It is very interesting. I mean, when you talk about that mediated aspect, like seeing war through your screens, I think I never really realized how witnessing war in real time almost makes you a participant of the war itself. I don't know, the real timeness of all of this and how audiences' reactions may inform political decisions in real time. I don't know, I think I never really realized that. Just to be an active participant, you don't have to be a soldier to be actively participating in war. It just makes me think a little bit about our role in this and the role of witnessing, the role of retweeting, reposting, being selective or not on which stories we want to uh, signal boost, as we say. Yeah, and the implications of all of this. And obviously, uh, I mean, I know I'm going on forever, but like the whole thing of like when war looks inwards, even that concept itself of how when we are living in a culture, at least in the West, in North America, that's informed by war, it's in the DNA of the state, right? To seek to create value, so make people rich and entrench power through the same mechanisms of warfare that we just discussed. So I'm just like, oh, war outside, war inside. Well, no wonder we're conflicted humans yeah on that very bright note thank you for listening to this podcast thank you scott for sharing the insights of uh, your book with us and uh thank you ruth for spending sunday night yeah thank you very much for spending your sunday morning you know i know it seems all like very serious but it was really insightful and interesting i really really enjoyed talking to scott it was so interesting to hear his perspectives and to have all of these kind of like different aspects of the conversation of war just like weaving in and out of each other like everything Mm -hmm. just kept kind of like connecting back to other points yeah and you know we always say like 
hashtag things intersect. But I think it was really true. You know, you couldn't talk about the propaganda without also talking about these elements about class. And you can't talk about that with all talking about capitalism and all these other things. Like, it was just interesting how we kind of like kept jumping back and forth around. And then comes like race and gender and... Oh, everything else. It was awesome. So for people who are interested, uh, take a look at the footnotes. They can be found where, Ruth? At theintersectionofthings.com. You can also tweet us at thingsintersect. And this podcast is available wherever you hear and listen and download your podcasts. But leave us a review, please. Uh, Five stars or more, (laughs) if possible. (laughs) Ruth, where can you be found if you want to be found? I'm at Nessient on Twitter. That's N-E-S-I-E-N-T. And what about you, Marinella? I am sometimes at Undaced and Such, and I request you only communicate in GIFs. Not really, but, you know, try your best. This has been another episode of The Intersection of Things. Thank you to our guest. Uh, we do everything else except for editing, which is done by... Ellie Brigida from the Les Hangout podcast. Excellent. And the music is by... David Mark Huffersby. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you uh, to everyone who listens and everyone who's involved in the making of this. Thank you, Ruth. And till next time. <laughs>